and you bounce around in IBM from function to function. So I spent time in marketing. I spent time in new product development. Then I went and became a sales manager. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for the show and a CPA myself. Well, Today's episode has so much in common with our last episode, but also has so, so many differences. Today, we have Gail Crosley joining us, a widely recognized consultant to some of the largest accounting firms in the marketplace. And she's going to share her unique and frankly, rather unusual career journey for an accountant. In our last episode, we had a guest that had spun her love for poker into a niche And so there's some similarity from the standpoint of of finding your natural interests and talents and using those to form your career. But Gail's journey is quite different or was quite different. In this episode, you're going to hear how Gail started for just a few years in accounting before basically being actively recruited into a new sales program at IBM, the computer giant. And then how that, along with her interest in technology and accounting, launched her into the marketing, product development, and sales world, and then later into tech startups before eventually founding Crosley & Company. Crosley & Company is a consulting practice that helps accounting firms with not just their marketing, but truly with their growth. This was one of those episodes where I truly wish I had another hour or two. There was so much to take in and learn. You're really going to find a lot of value in this particular interview. And if you do enjoy this particular interview, of course, please leave us a rating in your podcast app if you can spare a few seconds. And if you can spare a minute, please write us a review as well. I love it when we see those. We always appreciate new ratings and reviews. It helps others to find the content and end up choosing to share it out as well. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career or for any accounting associations that you're involved in, please reach out to me. I'm very findable on LinkedIn. Just search for Mark Goldman, CPA, and I'll pop right up. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's guest. Here's Gail Crosley. Well, hello, Gail. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks. It's great to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, for the audience, today we have a guest that was on the recent top 100 most influential people in accounting list. Gail Crosley from Crosley & Company is joining us for the program. And I invited her on the show for many reasons. First, of course, was the fact that I noticed her on the list. But then when I did more research, it really intrigued me that she's taken her career deep in the area of sales and marketing consulting with Crosley and Company, but she started in accounting, just like the rest of us. I think this is going to be a really interesting story for all of us to hear. Gail, before we get to the present time with Crosley and Company, I want to make sure we cover your overall journey in some detail because that way we understand how you got to where you are, so to speak. What led you to decide on accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? Well, I was lopping along at the university in my first two years of general classes, and it was time to choose a major. And they told me that I would have to take two years of a language. 
in most of the majors. And I knew I couldn't pass two years of a language. I could barely get through French in high school. And so I said, <laughs> are there any degrees that don't require a language? And they said, yes, a foreign language. That's the business school. And I said, sign me up. So that's how I ended up in the business school. <laughs> And I was planning on being a classical piano major, actually. And they said, if you want to be a classical piano major, you have to take two years of the language. So that was the end of that. And I had been playing classical piano since I was five years old, right, when I started. But anyway, I did a pivot and I went into the business school. And once I was in there, I took my first accounting 101 class and I was like a fish in water. I absolutely loved it, and I aspired to getting straight A's in accounting, and I loved it so much that I sat for the CPA exam when I was still a senior in college and hadn't graduated. And my plan was to be a partner in a big national accounting firm, and that was my career path, and I was very clear about that's where I wanted to be. Interesting. Yeah, those were the days when you could still sit, you know, (laughs) while you were a senior. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you can tell that I'm not a partner in a big national accounting firm. So all the things that we think that we want to do and are going to be doing, there are other plans for us in this life. (laughs) Yes, it's interesting how that turns out. My career was similar and that that was always my plan, plan A. And yeah, (laughs) doesn't work. Yeah, here you are. So that's going to launch us into your early career pretty quickly, which is good. I was curious, you started at two of what we call the big eight (laughs) at the Mm -hmm. time, right? Anderson, and I'm guessing a predecessor to PwC back then. Right, Um, it was Pricewaterhouse was the other one, yeah. Pricewaterhouse, okay. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those a little bit. I guess, how did you get on at Anderson? And then how do you feel your careers benefited from those first three years at both of those firms? Well, when the Big Eight came to the campus, they were recruiting us, and Anderson was the one of all of them that some of them were not interested in me, but others of them were. But Anderson was the one that was the most progressive. They were unique back then. A lot of the other of the Big Eight were very stodgy and old school and so forth, but Anderson projected a very forward-thinking interesting way of recruiting people who weren't just heads down accountants. And for some reason, I just clicked with them. I'm not exactly sure why, but we clicked immediately. So I went to work for Arthur Anderson in Cleveland, Ohio as my first job out of school. I actually wanted to be in their management consulting group because I had taken a lot of computer-related computer systems, a couple of programming languages, and they said, you can't go into the consulting area because you don't have a degree in technology. And so you can either do audit or tax, and we think you'd be great in audit. And I never really warmed up to tax, so I was an auditor. And that's how I started my career as a staff auditor. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned you know computer courses, that kind of thing. And I know just a couple years or I guess three years later, you end up working at IBM. So, and you're not, as you said, a CPA firm partner. So <laughs> how, did, that how, I'm not. <laughs> how did all that transition happen? I guess at what, what point was it, was it by luck that you ended up at IBM or was that a career no, choice that you decided? There, uh-huh. Yeah, there's always interesting twists and turns, and you've got to be tuned into where you're being directed. But the bottom line on all this is that 
I was up in Cleveland and I lived way on the east side of Cleveland. Of course, Cleveland's on Lake Erie. So the north side is all the lakes. So I lived away on the east side and I got on audits that were way on the west side. And it was 50 miles away, 25 miles in into Cleveland and 25 miles out the other side in the middle of winter with winds whipping off the lake at 30, 40 miles an hour. And I said, I grew up in Akron, Ohio. I grew up in Akron and I hated the weather then and I hate it now. And I'm an adult and I have a choice. So I packed my bags and I left Cleveland and moved to Atlanta for the weather. And I didn't have the guts to tell Arthur Anderson I was leaving. Probably should have because they would have said, oh, well, we can transfer you to Atlanta. But I didn't have the confidence to do that. So I just interviewed the other seven of the big eight down here. And I ended up with Price Waterhouse in Atlanta on their audit staff. And so now I'm in the sunny South and have never left. I love Atlanta, but I continued auditing. I enjoyed it. And accounting has been my one of my first loves. So I was cooking along at Price Waterhouse. But what happened is that I was a woman in accounting back in the day and in the South and a Northerner. So it didn't go well. <laughs> It did not go well. Culturally, culturally, I was I was always the first woman this and that. In my accounting class of a few hundred people, there were three women. And so women were looked upon as, you're an oddball and why are you here? And so it was very difficult for me to fit in. And as a result, I say it laughingly, they pretty much ran me off, but it was a cultural no fit. They just didn't know what to do with me. Where are we going to use her? We can't send her out of town because she's a single woman and on and on all the various things. So I decided that I needed to go find a place that was more culturally compatible. And I thought, well, I'll go into private industry. And by that time, I was a CPA both in Ohio and Georgia. So I had fulfilled the requirements. And I started picking up the phone and calling various companies in Atlanta, and one of them was IBM, and they had me come down to their offices. And as I was interviewing, they said, well, listen, this is a sales office. We don't have any accounting jobs here. And I said, well, oh, well, thank you very much. And I got up to leave. And they said, well, wait, wait, we think you can sell. And I was stunned. I'm like, excuse me, I'm a professional. (laughs) I'm a CPA. (laughs) No, I'm not interested in selling. And I left. And so in the ensuing year, I was in and out of a couple of jobs. I had an internal audit job. I didn't like that. I went with a local firm. I didn't like that. And they happened to catch me at a right moment about a year later. They call every few months and say, are you sure? Are you sure? And about a year later, they said, listen, we are starting a class of women to teach them how to sell large computer systems. Uh, These things are just big accounting machines, and they cost a million dollars and up. And we can teach you how to sell. We can't teach you how to be analytical. And they said, we've only tried women in the typewriter division, but we're going to give them a big iron and see what they can do. And I said, okay, all righty. Yeah, they are big accounting machines. So, all right. So I joined them. And the rest is history. I was there 12 years and they taught me how to sell. And believe me, I didn't have, in my estimation, a sales bone in my body. I told you about how lacking in confidence I was. I didn't even have the guts to tell Arthur Anderson I wanted to transfer. And they did that. And so in the 12 years that I was there, I went up the corporate food chain. I started in sales. 
then and you bounce around in IBM from function to function. So I spent time in marketing. I spent time in new product development. Then I went and became a sales manager. And I was clipping along with promotions every couple of years. So I thought, wow, I could be the president of this company or some company at some point in time because I really really like this stuff. So that's how I got into sales. So when I think of IBM in the 70s and 80s, I mean, that's when people used to joke about the white shirt. Everybody wore a white shirt and tie. And I tend to think of men. So IBM wasn't as male-dominated at that time? They were, but they were really working hard to not be male-dominated. They were very early on with Enlightenment and Corporate America of hiring women. And they really made it a point to develop us and nurture us and culturally have it be friendly to women. Whereas in the big eight, they weren't aware, they were not purposeful about it. It wasn't an initiative, but IBM was way ahead of the curve. Even though male dominated, it was a very female friendly place and it was purposeful about it. So it was the delightful place to be. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know they were that progressive that early. That's good to Mm -hmm. know. That's good to know. Yes. So I'm curious, so you're an accountant that they eventually convinced (laughs) to come try this sales (laughs) job and obviously it worked really well over the years. Did you find that it was a natural fit from day one and, oh, you know, I found what I'm good at or were there some adjustments? Did you find yourself having to change? Was it awkward in the beginning, I guess, is what I'm trying to get down to. It was frightening, but There was in sales training, and you go through sales training, it takes about a year that you go off at school and come back. The thing that really grabbed me, remember that I was drawn to computers in college. And so part of the training was, again, computer systems and learning Fortran and COBOL. And those pieces of it were so exciting to me. And the counting systems and and the whole application of the computers to the general ledger, you know, I was lapping that up. And the pieces of it that were frightening were the sales pieces. We had to make mock sales calls on instructors and so forth. And oh my God, I had butterflies in my stomach. But as I tell my CPAs now, is anything that you do when you learn how to do it and then you practice it, and then the fear dissipates. And IBM knew this because they were not hiring salespeople. You don't come out of college as a trained salesperson. You come out as an English major, a history major, an accounting major, whatever, math major, etc. And a lot of them were math majors. And so I was the extreme extrovert in the crowd because I was an accounting <laughs> major. So we were all equally terrified. (laughs) I remember all those conversations about being equally terrified. But after a while and after practice and after you're going out with senior salespeople and so forth, it turned out that they found some things in me that I didn't even know I had in there myself. Okay. (laughs) When you're a CPA in a room full of mathematicians and statisticians, you're the party animal. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It's true. And as introverted and wallflower-ish as I was, believe me, everything is relative. (laughs) I want to make sure I don't speed through that time before we get to what you do now. 12 years is a long time at IBM. Are there any... I guess, milestone experiences or lessons that you look back on from your time there that you can identify as, wow, that helped me be better at what I do now. Learning this and that or this experience really helped me to be able to do what I do in my practice now. 
There were a couple of things. The first thing is because they moved you functionally from sales to marketing to product management to back to sales and marketing and back and forth, I found that I liked all three of those functional disciplines equally well, and I was equally capable in all three. And this proved to be a strength and a weakness. And the strength was that I loved them all, but the weaknesses, I could never declare one. So when I left IBM after 12 years, the companies wanted to pigeonhole me into one of the three of them, and I didn't want to be. And I found that because I left and went into early stage technology companies that I wanted to have responsibilities that included all three, and I never could. So if I was a VP of sales, I wanted to be over in marketing. If I was a VP of marketing, I wanted to be in sales. If I was a new product, you know, it was like, no, no, I want a job that has all three, which is now what I use all three of those functional disciplines and I help in helping CPA firms grow. But it was that I was multi-talented in all three of these functional disciplines. So that's one thing I learned. The second thing that I learned was that I'm very creative. I did not know that. Well, accounting doesn't tend to be, yeah, you don't think of accounting as being creative, although it can very much be, but I turned out to be a very creative person, did not know that. And so there were things about me that I realized as I was going through IBM and IBM, I call good potty training. They really taught you what it was like to be a business person and in so many ways that a lot of the lessons about just raw being a business person, being able to operate at the executive level because we were selling to high-level people in banks and other kinds of organizations, that those lessons carried forward so that I was relevant in any business environment that I encountered subsequent to IBM. The last thing that I learned was the value of good management. I worked for some of the best bosses that I have ever had before or since. I mean, like incredibly talented because they put a lot of investment in people development and in managing people and in teaching you how to manage people. So I went through a lot of management training classes myself in terms of how do you manage other people. And I was not a natural at it, but they taught me how to do those things. So it was a great experience. They were also, Mm. by the way, a very upstanding, good, positive culture, people-oriented, do the right thing. I remember that one of my bosses that I worked for, I had a peer that did something that was not a good thing to me. And the motto of IBM was respect for the individual. And they taught us what behaviors they expected. And his behavior toward me was not a good behavior. So I went into my boss and I told him about it. And he said, ah, don't worry about it. Just brush it off. And I walked out of his office very discouraged because that was not how IBM taught us to be. And he called me into his office the next day and he said, thanks to you, I didn't sleep last night. (laughs) I said, oh my God. (laughs) And it wasn't my boss. It was my boss's boss. Okay. I mean, he was a big cheese. And I said, oh dear, he's going to fire me. And he said, but I want to thank you for that because you're right. He shouldn't have done that to you. And I'm going to take care of it. And that's not the way we do things at IBM. So they put their money where their mouth was. And I took those lessons forward with me to, to see and notice what a culture is really like and what you want it to be. 
Wow. Yeah, those experiences and those bosses are very valuable. Yeah, you don't <laughs> you don't always encounter that. That is tremendous. Well, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know you mentioned a couple companies in the middle of IBM and starting your firm. And, and what I'm really curious about is what the decision-making process was like to start your own firm. So I don't know if you want to go over the stuff in the middle or not, but what was the decision-making process like and what led you eventually to say, I'm going to hang up a sign that says Crosley and Company? Well, after I left IBM, because and I left them because we had a major reorganization while I was out on maternity leave with my first child. And I told my boss at the time, don't shuffle me out of the deck. I'm coming back in six weeks. And he said, okay, no problem. And when I came back, I had been shuffled out of the deck and I had been moved sideways into some parking slot. And I decided, okay, as long as I was climbing the ladder, then I was good. But I didn't aspire to be in a parking slot and some staff job forever. So I quit. And I went into venture capital-backed early stage and startup companies for the next decade, almost, in and out of companies in technology. It is the revolving door. The company starts, then it grows a little bit, and then they shift strategy, and then you're out the door, and then you go and look for another one. So I did that for several years there. But the nice thing about that is I was learning what a startup looked like, which was the antithesis of the big behemoth that I had been in. So now I was getting on the in the other, being in a venture capital-backed startups and so forth is as different from the big companies as Venus is from Mars. And so I was on a totally different planet now and using learning skills, how to grow a business, how to get it off the ground, blah, 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 for years. And finally, there was a stint in there where I said, you know, I want to start my own business. And it was not Crosley and Company. It was called Synchrony Networks. And what we did was implemented local area networks, which were client server based technology for small companies that were up to 100 employees. And I started this from scratch by myself. And I said, you know, even if this doesn't go anywhere, it's an on the job MBA. And it certainly was. Oh, my goodness. So now I am sitting in my bedroom with a telephone. (laughs) Now what I do. So I had to, from scratch, I had to say, okay, what kind of business should I be in? Let me envision it. Now I know accounting, sales, marketing, new product development. That's a really good set of skills. And so I started Synchrony because I had a friend who said this client server thing is taking off. It's going to replace the mainframes. And he had a company that was modest, about 20 people in the executive search business, by the way. And he said, if you want to get into the local area network business, then I'll be your first client or customer. And so I identified some engineers that I put on 1099 status and I got this company rolling and I had my first client and I learned through the school of hard knocks, basically how to run a company, my own. And I was growing it. And after three years, it took off and it was growing very nicely. And at the three-year mark, I said, you know, there's a problem with this. I hate things that break. (laughs) I was in the business of break, fix, implementing computer networks. And people would call when the computers didn't work. And my engineers had to go out there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I hate the business that I'm in. I love the fact that I started a business, but I hate the business I'm in. So I sold it. And that's why when I started Crosley and Company, I had already been through starting a company before 
and learning how to get it off the ground. So this time it was much easier and went much faster. So I went back into corporate for a while, into into jobs with big titles and lots of people reporting to me and good money, blah, blah, blah. And my last real job was finally I had reached the top. I was the executive vice president in charge of sales, marketing, and new product development. And I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm now there. And then the dot-com bust hit. And the rug got pulled out. And my company, the company that I was in and all the other companies, they trimmed and laid off and shut down and there was nothing left. So here I sit with no possibility of a job of anything, not even starting a company. There was nothing. It was really, really significant for anybody in technology pulling out of the rug from under you. So I was starting back at square one at that point. Wow. So did you start Crosley and Company with the same specialty as you have now and helping firms with revenue growth issues? Or did you have a little different focus in the beginning? Because it's quite different from break fix and high tech. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. Alrighty. So how this got started is now I knew how to evaluate the market and identify where you should go in a market. So the last time was just, I had a friend and he had a need and he said, I'd be your first customer, which is not how I recommend that you start a business. Although you don't tune out the opportunistic possibilities. So what you do is you look at a market strategically and say, what is needed in this market that is not there? I call it a market hole. What would people want that they do not have now? So it was a very different way of starting a business because I knew this now from all my years. And I said, okay, let me take an inventory of what I know. The thing that I know the best is sales, marketing, and new product development and how to drive revenue. I know how to get a firm off, a company off the ground. And I know if something's already off the ground, how to take it to the next level from startup all the way through big like IBM. And so once I said that, I said, now that's one piece, but that doesn't really matter because the only thing that matters is what does the market need? Do they need any of this stuff? And if they don't need any of this stuff, then you can't do anything with it. And technology, they didn't need any of that stuff. So I had to leave technology behind, park it on the shelf and go into places that I knew or that I felt like I could really get to know, kind of like I got to know client server because I didn't know any of that stuff when I started that. I was starting from scratch, hitting the books, going to classes. And this is a very important lesson that just because you don't know something doesn't mean you can't do something. You can take your gifts and figure out what the application might be. So all that being said, I said, what is the market that is not being impacted by technology right now? Because anything impacted by technology was not a market with good market conditions. And I found out, and there were very odd ones, like for example, spas were really getting off the ground where you went and got facials and all that stuff. So that was really taking off at that point. And the other ones that were taking off were marketing companies because the internet was really hot and marketing in the internet. And then professional services, which would be CPAs, lawyers, and then architects and engineers, because I figured that 
architects and engineers looked similar to lawyers and CPAs. So I was evaluating five different markets and I was going out and interviewing lots and lots of people in those five markets, which I now have coined my service market as research calls. And it's a particular way to, to interview people in different markets, compare the market conditions in the markets and identify which markets have the best conditions. And I went from five markets down to two, the ones that had the best conditions at that point for the growth-oriented functions that I could bring to the table were law firms and CPA firms. So then I made more and more research calls in each of those, interviewed a lot of lawyers and some CPAs, and I came back and said, the CPAs, this is the market that has the best market conditions. And I knew what to look for in terms of what constitutes the best market condition. So then once I decided it was the CPAs, then I knew that my next step had to be to find an early adopter who I could practice on, like I had done with my friend back with technology. And I found a CPA who said, yeah, come in and practice on us. So I did. I went into their firm and I spent several weeks, a few months actually, figuring out how to design the consulting service. I was figuring out of all the ways that you could help CPA firms with growth, what would be the various ways you could help them. And there were several different ways. And finally, by process of elimination of a lot of continuing research calls, I finally found the market hole. And then it was a go. I was ready to go. I was doing the research calls. I was doing the early adopter project. And I was crafting a methodology, as you can tell, as to how to teach firms how to do this? How do they go and find their markets? How do they go and find their early adopters? How do they find what service the market needs? How do they package it up? How do they launch it? How do they get it off the ground and all that stuff? And so I was doing two things. I was getting my company off the ground and I was creating a methodology for them to either get their company off the ground or if they were already off the ground to take it to the next level. So that was the process of I call it leaning in and leaning out, opting in and opting out of figuring out how to grow your accounting firm. I know you're going to come up on a hard stop here soon, and there's three questions I end every show with. I want to make sure I I honor that. Before we get to that part, I'm curious to sum it all up. what, What do you find is one of the biggest misunderstandings that accounting firms have or misconceptions that they have about the type of consulting you do, about your specialty? Okay. A couple. Number one is they think that marketing and growth are one and the same. So they use the word marketing Mm. when they really mean growth. Yeah. And you can market all you want and not grow anything. So they're not aware that there are three functional disciplines and I call them the three legs of a growth stool. So if growth is seat of the stool and that's the ultimate objective, You've got to be able to have understanding of the marketing function, which is going out and grabbing markets at the market level and owning them. Sales, which is the functional discipline of developing and closing one opportunity at a time. And product management, which is aka innovation, which is having new, shiny, differentiated things on the shelf that people will want to buy that is not the same as everybody else, even in a compliance environment and hooking those three things together, enabling the growth of a firm. And where I've ended up as a result is I work mostly with the top 100 firms and secondarily with the next 300 firms that have already organizations but are not at a very sophisticated level of growth. 
because there's been a mentality that build it and they will come. <laughs> and that huh. is not necessarily the case. And there's a mentality that we are in a compliance business and you have to have an audit. You have to have a tax return done. And therefore, there's plenty of opportunity for everybody. But we're in a mature market now where it's not the case because it's a very, very competitive market. We have over 600,000 CPAs resident in over 40,000 CPA firms. And so there are principles of growth. I call them generally accepted growth principles that need to be adhered to, especially if you want to grow and you want to grow the, the quickest that you can grow and the most efficient you can grow, the most profitable you can grow and the most sustainably you can grow. And that's where I live right now is I work with these firms, the managing partner and the key partners at the top of the firm in terms of learning how to lead growth, not just do it. So a lot of CPAs say, okay, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm an individual contributor. I have a book of business. I can go out and grow and be a bit, I call it being a better golfer. But when you're growing in a larger organization, it's not about golf. It's about football. And so it's about a football team. It's about leading growth, not just doing it, leading it as you would a football team, coaching the football team, figuring out which players belong in which positions on the team in order to grow the firm. Interesting. Interesting. And build it and they will come. That was a great movie, but that yeah. quote is such a lie. <laughs> You're right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you can have the best mousetrap and nobody will want it because why? They don't need it that much. They don't want to pay for it that much. They don't know about it. Even if they did, they've got other priorities in their life. I mean, we get so enamored with what we can do in the service or the product we can sell. It's like, oh my gosh. And you get so overly invested in the service, you forget about whether the market wants it or not. So I say, look at the market from the outside in. Don't look from, at it from the inside out, which is I have all these skills or I have this product. Let me go out and see who wants it. No, it's called look at the market first, evaluate who wants it, evaluate what they would want, and then you match it to what you would bring to market. And that is the biggest mistake that most people make is they don't look at the market from the outside in. Hmm. Well, I do end every show with the same three questions. And I realize that we'll probably have to be a little abbreviated on, on some of this, maybe not full stories just because of the time constraint. But I do want to get through these. The first one is usually the easier one. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Hmm. I believe my proudest moment has been being recognized by my peers and in the context of two awards that I got. One was at my university with the Distinguished Alumni Award, and that was pretty awesome. And then the other one was the Advisory Board Hall of Fame, which was awarded to me by one of the top people in accounting. And they were my proudest moments because they could allow me to really show my work and the work that I was able to do because the good Lord gave me these gifts. And the glory of that and giving the glory back, that was pretty cool. I really, really loved both of those. I would say those were my proudest moments. Wow. Advisory Hall of Fame for what you do. That really does say something. Wow. My gosh. Yeah, yeah. Second question or request, I guess. Tell us about lesson that you've learned the hard way <laughs> and a little bit about the situation behind it because that's how we learn. 
I'm going to get very spiritual on you now because my lesson I learned the hard way is when I decided that I wanted to be the president of something or a partner in a big eight or something, that was my dream. But when I just said, okay, the good Lord, take me where I'm supposed to be. That's when I really learned that we're not alone and we can go on our own. It's the harder road. And when I realized that doors just start opening up. And that's how Carlsling Company got launched. It was amazing, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's amazing how often we ask God to bless our plan. I'm sorry, you know, this is my plan, so please bless him. It's like, no, that wasn't his plan. <laughs> it's not his plan for me. <laughs> yes, definitely works out better the second way. Mm-hmm. Well, last question, then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? My best piece of advice was from my mother. And hmm. yeah, she said, life's tough, get tough. And she said, what I mean is you're going to get knocked down. And when you're knocked down, you need to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and move on. And her whole point was persevere, that life is a set of, it's a lot of things, but one of the things it is, is a set of challenges for you to overcome, to learn from, to get better from, to have continuous improvement and to not give up, to not let these things in life that happen to us keep you on the floor because we're all going to get hammered in one way or another through life. And it is the picking oneself up and learning from it and putting the pieces back together and moving on. And in the, bo- in the final analysis, it is truly to, to take your God-given skills and gifts and to do good with them and to help other people on this planet because of those gifts that you have been given. And so those were the words of wisdom. Mm, there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, life is tough, get tough. And that, that's really appropriate too for the last couple of years. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yes. yeah. And I used it with our children and they would look at me and scoff and I'm like, quit saying that. And <laughs> Now they're all grown up, and I think they realize why I kept saying that is don't let it do you in. You got to rise to the occasion so that you can do good to yourself, for yourself, and do good for others. What good are you if you're laying on the floor rolling around the dust? Woe is me, and I can't get up. You know, you're not going to be at your best to help people. So, yeah. Wonderful. Um, Well, if someone wants to look up more information about Crosley, What's the best place to look online? CrosleyCompany.com. CrosleyCompany.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. The audience doesn't know this, but I know each of us had some scheduling issues. And so I'm, I'm happy to finally to get to talk to you. This worked, oh. out, worked out finally and worked out well. So thank you for being so generous with your time. Oh, thank you, Mark. You're quite welcome. And I hope that there will be some pearls of wisdom in there somewhere that someone will be able to listen to and digested and perhaps be helpful for their own life circumstances. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, that was my interview with Gail Crosley of Crosley and Company. And you know, I really did mean it when I said it in the intro. I could have stretched that interview for another hour or two and gotten just that much more value out of it. I really enjoyed that conversation. And I think a couple of the reasons I really enjoyed it are, number one, it just goes to show that you can do practically anything when you start with a background in accounting. When you get that 
foundation in basic business principles, you can take that practically anywhere, even into a much different area like sales and marketing. And then secondly, I just found a lot of good business truth, a lot of truth about sales and marketing and and product development and company development in what Gail was sharing in this short period of time. You can tell that she really is a subject matter expert in her field. I personally really enjoyed this one. I know I've mentioned this before, but seriously, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career, please don't hesitate to reach out. I've been getting more and more of those messages on LinkedIn and emails, and I really do enjoy helping individuals with issues that they're facing. So if you're facing an issue in your career and and you like a non-biased third-party opinion, please reach out to me. I'm happy to help. Just search for Mark Goldman CPA on LinkedIn and I'll pop right up. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up with that. This has been another episode of Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. And as I always say, we'll see you next week. There's more to come.